Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm joined again on the podcast today by bestselling writer Dean Koontz. Dean's latest novel, After Death, will be published on July 18th. Koontz hardly needs an introduction. His books are published in 38 languages, and he has sold over 500 million copies to date. Dean, welcome back to the podcast. Well, thanks for having me back there again. I guess I behaved myself the last time. You did. You did. Well, well, thanks for joining us. I wanted to ask you, if someone hasn't yet heard about your new novel, After Death, how would you describe the novel? Well, it's uh, it involves a, gen- a man who is part of an experiment. Uh, he was head of security, a very highly secure laboratory. And something went wrong in an experiment they were doing. And 55 people everywhere in the building ended up dead. He is the only one who comes back to life. And he come back, comes back to life with an ability that's quite extraordinary. Uh, he comes back to life not just with the ability, but with a mission. Uh, and the book uh, unfolds from that moment. Can you pinpoint the original idea or impetus that led you to writing after death? Uh, sometimes you, you know exactly where an idea started or came from. In this case, I, I can't pin it down, except that I've been reading a lot about the singularity at the moment with technology and biology combined in the human species is supposedly lifted up into a higher plane by all of this. And I've always thought it won't work out that way. It won't necessarily be a disaster. <laughs> That's not what this book is about. But whatever happens will be something unanticipated. And that was sort of the thing in the back of my head for quite a while. Uh, and I guess at some point it matured into this idea. But I can't pinpoint the moment when it happened. I actually was uh, working on another book. And when this one came into my head, with that little opening scene, which actually isn't the opening scene, slightly later. Uh, when that came into my head, I put the other book aside and went on to this one, dated first. Uh, so it's, uh, that's about as much as I can tell you. Ideas a lot of times are mysterious where they come from or why they come down to writing. Does that happen to you um, uh, often where you'll, you'll have an idea in the middle of a book and then switch? No, it's extremely rare. Usually, when I'm in the middle of a book, my focus, uh, sorry for my voice this morning, I've got a touch of laryngitis, but uh, gently when I'm in the middle of a book, everything is about me and I am. (laughs) I don't want any distraction from that. And so it's very unusual. In this case, I think it was a combination of two things. One, I found this idea very intriguing. And two, that novel at this part way through, I had reached a point where I was uncertain what was going to happen at the end of that book. And I need to have a better idea. I don't plan out plots, but if I get halfway through and I'm mystified, uh, then I've got something I have to, I have to brood upon. And in this case, it took enough brooding I could write an entire book. Well, I, I, 
in terms of talking about uh, outlines, I, I think that you said um, after Strangers that you threw away detailed outlines and you kind of dive into the book and the narrative and the characters. I, I wondered if we could talk just a moment about that actual uh idea creation. When you do sit down on day one of a new book, and obviously this wouldn't be the case because you had this idea for the scene, but when you do sit down on day one of a new book, do you usually have a rough idea in your head or do you literally sit down to a blank page? I pretty much sit down to a blank page, except I know what the opening is going about. And in the case of After That, I knew that this character was going to show up He's walking through nighttime Beverly Hills uh, very late at night after midnight. And that's a town where anyone walking after midnight is suspect by the police. Uh, all that racket, you, if you heard in the background, is my golden retriever trying to <laughs> it should be about her and not about me. Uh, and... Uh, uh, I had the scene with him at an interesting moment at the end of the scene where he confronts some bad guys with that demand that seems totally absurd. Uh, so I had that one scene, and then it's about getting that character so he re really wanted to who is this guy? Where does he get his confidence or this attitude? And what is he up to? And then uh, things start to unfold uh, almost automatically. Uh, that you just have to run to keep up with them sometimes. Well, I know in, in other inter interviews, you've talked about your writing process, and you mentioned in, in one interview that you might write and rewrite four to five pages in one week. And then if you came, if someone came back and asked you two weeks later uh, that you have then written 25 to 30 pages the following week, in the weeks that you're writing the four to five pages, are you aware that you're not ready to move beyond that fifth page? Or are you thinking ahead about the plot or characters? Uh, you're always thinking ahead, sometimes both consciously and unconsciously. I'm surprised a lot of times when I think I have a problem with the character or the situation. And I move ahead a few pages and suddenly it was no problem at all. And I understood the solution to it on an unconscious level. But I'm always uh, sort of thinking, uh, I tend to do one page at a time and, and polish that page over and over until I feel comfortable about moving on. Uh, so I'm spending a lot of time, psychological time, with the characters and getting to know them so that when I write slowly like that at the beginning, uh, for maybe a half book and relatively slow in the process. Uh, and I'm also getting to know the character. And because I believe character is more important than plot, it is in a book, though plot is quite important, uh, the characters developing and becoming intriguing, interesting, and compelling, uh, that's the essence of it. When I have that, they carry the story. And if I don't have that, that's when I get to that rare occasion when I think I've got to put this aside and think about these people and this situation better. Uh, and sometimes it resolves, sometimes it doesn't, but nearly always it does resolve. It's a gift from time to become fully fleshed and in your mind. 
Well, what was the process for you over the years of, of figuring out your kind of own creative and writing process? How did that work for you? I spent a lot of years doing it all And that was, in some ways, very helpful. Uh, I started out writing paperback originals uh, in the science fiction field. It wasn't, it was what I had read as a kid and a young adult, almost exclusively. So it's what I wanted to write. And I wrote it for a few years and reasonably successfully until one day I said, this isn't what I have any skill at doing properly. Uh, I sort of wrote it. Writing uh, has been stuff, uh, secondary kind of fiction to somebody else's bright ideas. And I don't like this. I will write something fresh and interesting, and it's more me. And that's when I gave that up, looked into a comic novel, first of all, and then into suspense, and then into multi-genres in the same book. And it was a slow learning process. and I don't know why it took me so long, but when I look back on it, I saw my first novel uh, 15 or 16 years before I finally began to write the kind of novels that opened up to me my own. And it was just, for me, a very slow learning process. Uh, and then, when that damn thing, uh, when there was a moment that I understood how I could do what I wanted to do, then it unfolded pretty rapidly over the next several books. Uh, I wish I had learned quicker, but that was the only way to do it. Problem for young writers these days is I don't think you have that 15 years to learn what you're doing that I had when publishing was a different universe than it is now, where you could write paperback originals and nobody held it against you if the sales were not what they ought to have been. These days, if you don't have sales, they want to see four or five books. They almost write no off forever. Well, during that 16-year period, were you trying on different styles and learning from every book? Yes, in a stumbling sort of fashion. <laughs> it looks to people from the outside as if I had this smooth ascending coin. And uh, I may have always known what I was doing, but... That, in fact, is not the case. Uh, but yes, it was learning along the way, getting better at it. And that means that use of language, that making the story unfold, that developing character, and all of those things. But also, at kind, of, kind of coming to understand, having what Japanese would call a satori, a moment of enlightenment, that you say, aha, and you suddenly begin to understand what it is that makes a story stand above others and how to proceed in a fashion that makes that certain to happen, or at least as certain as you can ever be to make it happen. Uh, and I don't know why that moment happens, why it took 15 or 16 years to me, why some people get it in one year or less. Some people get it when the first book they ever run. Some people get it on the first book they ever write and never recapture it again. So I count myself lucky that when I did suddenly understand it, I understand what it took to make a book appeal to a wider audience, but not diminish in any way by the broad audience that actually made it richer. Then I was able to kind of keep 
Uh, and it was what excited me about uh, so I count myself fortunate. I'm not, not stupid enough to think by the genius they figured it out and never lost it. I still fully understand it, but I know how to repeat it. Uh, not that I repeat the story, but I know how to reach for that thing about characters and story makes people with a comeback to the experience again. Well, I know that previously you've written two how-to-write fiction books. Have you considered writing another one at this stage in your career? Well, what I say to anyone who got those two books, throw them away, burn them out. Just <laughs> some very final manner because I think I thought I knew what I was doing when I wrote, and it was only after those books I really started to learn. Uh, I thought of writing a book about would be very different. Uh, and I, I, my wife wants me to write a book about all the way things were screwed up because <laughs> that happened a lot. Uh, and uh, I think there's value in that along with maybe some thoughts about writing a different kind of book that talks about what can go wrong uh, inside your career, having to do with business, having to do with people you work with, who don't get what they're doing or trying to do. There's so many interesting things that happen in the writing career that neither advance it or hold it back. And that actually had nothing to do with the quality of the writing. And I think it'd be very intriguing to just be very frank about those things in a book. Well, on that note, um, obviously the, the publishing industry and um, just bookstores and, and reading in general is a lot different in 2023 than when you sold your first short stories or novels. What writing advice would you offer now for someone who may be working on their first stories or novels? Well, I think that the way you tell a story can give it uh, appeal either to or to Berlin. That pretty much hasn't changed, and that's still a mystery. Uh, one thing that has changed, I think, for the better, is publishers all scramble these days to publish books that might be chosen by a book club. And that has really boiled down to a book club operated by a celebrity or by a TV channel, uh, network, uh, somebody that can give a book a big push right at the beginning. And so that boils down to only a couple of kinds of books. And you're seeing a lot of certain types of books published over and over a surface of them. And I don't think that's good for publishing, but everybody's chasing that one big thing. And that Actual other big things that will come along will not be anything anybody's published before. So I used to say to young writers, when vampire novels were the biggest thing ever, don't write a vampire novel unless that's all you want to read and write. Because by the time you write a couple of vampire novels, nobody will want to read them anymore. And secondly, you will then be tagged as a vampire novelist and nobody will want to buy anything else from you. Uh, so all of that is sort of the same. Uh, but what has, has changed is ways 
you get into the marketplace, the mass market paperback has largely been destroyed intentionally by the industry because the price point was too low, and they felt it was too low profit. Uh, in spite of the fact that it costs about 30 cents to public a mass market paperback, and they sell it for $10 and give a, a like 50% discount to store. Uh, they, uh, I think they shot themselves in the foot when they did away with the mass market. So now you have hardcovers, trade paperbacks, and ebooks. And none of them have, not even together, made up for the lost ground in the paperback market, the mass market. So it's harder for writers these days to break through because they don't have that proving ground that used to be so common. Uh, so it takes more thought, more care, uh, and Having been a writer myself, I know that it is in our nature, most of us, not to think about it that much, uh, to just get caught up in the excitement of the creation and plunge forward. But the way it is, I think you have to get more thought about what you're writing, how you're writing it, and how you expect it to be marketed by publisher. And that, those are the things I tap book. But we would need three or four days to send it up. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, are you working on a new novel now? Well, yes, I've got two delivered that are pending publication after after death. I'm hoping after death isn't predicting something in my own life, but <laughs> I hope I, uh, I'm alive the day after after death is public. Uh, then I've got a book called The Bad Weather Friend, which is a spitz novel, but also a comic novel. Uh, and following that is a novel called The Huntress, uh, which is pretty intense. And I'm working now on a book called Going Home to the Dark, which is also another comic novel, but somewhat different. My comic novels like uh, Life Expectancy, One Door Away from Heaven, are also heavy suspense novels. It's, it's two things I find very interesting to mix together. Well, how are you enjoying your publishing relationship with Amazon? From from the outside, it seems that your creativity is not slowing down at all, and you're publishing two novels a year. How are you liking uh, things with Amazon? You know, it was uh, it was an interesting and they had to go Thomas and Mercer, which and with my company. First of all, was such a prejudice in the business against Amazon that. Not a lot of stores weren't carrying 
Thomas. Uh, but I had to look at what was happening uh, in terms of support uh, at my former publisher, House, what that business wanted to do with writers and what the opportunity was worth it for offering. And it wasn't what it used to be. And I felt I was, uh, I was struggling against prejudices in publishing changes that were negative to my career, and I had to do something about it. It wasn't my intention to go to Amazon. It was my agent saying, we want to put, put into the mix of making offers, uh, all the regular big publishers, but also this imprint of Amazon. And I thought that was a very strange thing. But then when we got eight or nine offers, I can't remember now exactly, they were nearly all in the same kind of ballpark. But what was unusual was all the new publishers either did one or two page uh, marketing plan or no marketing plan at all. Well, uh, Amazon, Thomas and Mercer, they a 40 page marketing plan. And I compared these things and thought, okay, everything was changing. And it may be that going this Amazon company, excuse me, you won't be on the best seller list because they don't have these sales. Uh, and you won't be readily available in all bookstores, and they're on bookstores. I, I still handle these books because I sign copies for them, and they're faithful to what I've done in the past. But there are other avenues through which you sell books these days, and those avenues are becoming Great. So it was an odd decision, but it's it's been absolutely the right one for me because I'm working with a young, more enthusiastic, interesting, fairly creative in a way you don't see that often in publishing, and very enthusiastic, uh, designing covers. What the thing they're doing is producing the book. They are produced at much higher level. Uh, they have very strong bindings instead of the ones that we tend to see these things that fall apart while they do decorative boards. They do decorative papers. The books look very nice. And that is something that used to be done in general publishing, but almost will And say the nickel here and six cents there, general publishers say that. But uh, Thomas and Mercy, uh, my book is the child of the books. Being a book collector myself, I just like having these So it's worked out very well. I like everybody I'm working with. Uh, we're all in the same page. Um, at least we have been through the books so far. And uh, I think it's the best thing I could have done. Well, I know at the beginning of your career, when you were talking about this 15 or 16 year period, when you were kind of developing your unique style and take on suspense and multi-genre, that you have mentioned that you were reading voraciously, sometimes 100 or 200 novels a year. Obviously, some of those were smaller uh, paperbacks, as you mentioned. Um, are you still reading at the pace that you once were? Not quite. Uh like I used to, partly uh, that's because I really read a great deal more uh, 
research material uh, for the kind of books I've been on. Excuse me. Uh, and that takes a chunk of reading time. But I, I still, if some uh, writer comes along, I never doubt I want to know what's going on with that. And I also like to go back and read uh, books that I admired uh, 40, 50 years ago. And, and I feel formed my own style or helped form it and see what I think of them now. Uh, was I an idiot at that time? <laughs> and I really have some good sense of the time of what I was reading. Uh, so I recently been back reading John D. McDonald novels, and lo and behold, they hold up just as well as ever, maybe a little better than I remember. Uh, so that's occupied my Well, to, to paraphrase uh, Ray Bradbury, he said something along the lines of um, you can live forever with your creative output, whether it's stories or novels or films. What are, what are, What is your thought about that? Well, I'd just rather live forever for real. Uh, but if it had <laughs> through the literary output, so be it. Uh, nobody knows in that regard whether what you work on will be read 50 or 100 years from now. I've been fortunate books I wrote about four years ago have stayed in print all that time uh, and never lapsed. So in that regard, I've been lucky. Uh, you like to think that there will be certain things you've written uh, that will continue uh, to go on for a long time after you've passed, but there's no guarantee, uh, just as there's no guarantee, the world itself will be here long after you've passed. So, I tend to write, and always have, most of all, for my own pleasure. Uh, it's always a story I wish somebody would have written that I could read. Uh, and if when I'm writing, I'm laughing out loud at something funny that happened, or I get that chill on something pretty desperate as underlay for the character, then I know it's working. Uh, and the, what I'm actually writing is a book for me. And I think in the end, that's, that's what means you're writing something that is going to touch other people at a deeper level because you're, at the same time you're writing for yourself, you're putting uh, all of yourself into it that you can. And in the end, it's, it's the voice of the author and the uniqueness about the approach to storytelling that makes something worth reading and worth lasting. That's wonderful. Well, again, we've been speaking to best-selling writer Dean Kuntz. His new novel, After Death, will be published on July 18th, and you can pre-order the novel now. And Dean, thanks for doing this interview. Well, thanks for having me there and putting up my voice in me. It's always a pleasure. Absolutely. Brilliant Audio. After Death by Dean Kuntz. Performed by Eduardo Ballerini. Even at this hour, when real-world devils have just recently gone to sleep and only honest working folks are preparing for the blessing of labor, Michael can't curb Carter Woodbine's Bentley in front of Nina Dozier's house. To do so will make her a subject of even greater interest to the gangbangers who currently harass her. He parks the sedan in the lot of a dentist's office, where the greater disorder of her neighborhood meets the lesser disorder of another community. En route, he'd stop to take a hundred thousand dollars from the half million 
and had secreted those ten packets in the spare tire well of the car's trunk. Now he slipped the strap of the duffel over his right shoulder, his hand within the open top of the bag, holding Santana's pistol in a relaxed grip, and he sets out to walk eight blocks. Although this is a crime-racked area, he doesn't think trouble is inevitable or even likely. For all its dangers, this is not an outpost of hell. Nevertheless, there is no safe neighborhood these days, and any homeboy with an active imagination might be as interested in a duffel bag as in the flash of a solid gold Rolex. This is a residential district, where precious illumination is allowed in a time of shortages. However, the lampposts are old and insufficiently bright, and the milky globes atop a number of them have been shot out or broken with stones. The street trees are nearly as old as the city and have not been properly maintained in decades. Through the intricate thatchery of branches, the veiled glow of the westering moon is reduced to a stippling of gray light on the otherwise dark sidewalk. When any vehicle approaching from behind him slows down, he tenses in expectation that it will stop, that a confrontation might occur. They all motor eastward, toward a thin ashen radiance along the eastern rim of the world that is rising as though the lost continent of Atlantis is slowly surfacing in the sea of night. The houses are mostly bungalows, stucco or clapboard, on small lots. Some are maintained with pride. An equal number are crumbling toward condemnation the lawns long neglected. Perhaps ten percent are abandoned. This is Vig territory, a gang as dangerous as the bloods of the Crips, their name shortened from Vigorous, to imply that they have drive, force, and strength. Nina Dozier's stucco bungalow is in good repair, colorless in these last minutes of darkness, but in daylight, pale blue with white trim. Two small bedrooms, one bath, a living room that also serves as a home office, an eat-in kitchen, maybe 700 square feet in all. The house had belonged to her mom and dad. She inherited it, along with a mortgage, when they were run down and killed in a crosswalk as they were coming home from a local market with bags of groceries. The hit-and-run driver, later caught, was a methamphetamine freak with a long rap sheet, recently released on bail after being charged with carjacking. He was driving a stolen Lincoln Aviator that he totaled later that day without injury to himself. Because Nina's son will be sleeping at this hour, Michael goes around the bungalow to the back, as they arranged. She is sitting at the kitchen table with a cup of coffee, slim and fresh-faced, one of those women who seems too small to withstand the storms of this world, but walks through them all unbent, a mahogany Madonna. He taps softly on one of the four panes in the top half of the door, and she looks up. In spite of the proofs that he provided to her, she is clearly astonished that he has shown up as promised. Her surprise isn't accompanied with relief. She is accustomed to people and fate disappointing her just when her expectations are highest. She disengages the two deadbolts and opens the door. Michael steps into this humble home in which lives the hope of the world. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.